Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 117 of Let's Get Haunted haunted and if you are brand new to this show and you don't want to listen to this bullshit intro then guess what you're in luck open the show notes expand the show notes and click ahead at the very top it'll say skip two with the timestamp and you have no excuse to bitch about it because it's right there for you (laughs) yeah yeah so under no circumstance should you ever leave anything less than a five-star review that's all I got to say about that. And if you don't like the episode, skip to the next one. We've got a lot of episodes. And if you don't like the whole podcast, skip to a different podcast. Like, you don't need to leave a bad review. <laughs> we'll just assume if our podcast is doing shitty and no one's listening to it that it's fucked up. That's right. Yeah, I, we do keep track of analytics. So if you don't like an episode, just don't listen. And then at the end of the month, when I'm looking at the analytics, I'll be like, oh, I guess that episode like didn't hit. Yeah. Yeah. And then we know for the future. There you go. Wow. Excellent. Well, Natalia, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm all amped up on like old music. I was in my car and I don't know. I got a wild hair. Oh, I remember what happened. Last time we were recording in here, we were like doing arts and crafts, making (laughs) our office uh, a real thing, like gluing the soundproofing stuff to like the fake walls or whatever. And we were listening to, like, old country music, like Reba, like... Reba! Yeah. Did you click that that SNL skit I sent you? You sent me an SNL skit? Yes. Okay, I'll need to watch no, it. No, no, can you do it right now? Because it is... It, I need to see your reaction in real time. This is important. You guys have to listen to it through our shitty speakers. Oh my god, Keenan's Reba... anyway after we were listening to so much reba the other day i remembered that sketch from when we were in college and i listened to it like four times in a row my boyfriend was very unamused oh my god that is so hilarious i also did not expect it to go that way yeah yeah at all yeah yeah i this is just like all the nostalgia i don't know I'm not saying that everything from the past was good because like today I was eating lunch and uh, like Friends was on and I was watching it and I was like, it's funny, but it's not like as good as that skit we just watched. Right. You know, like that would be in our time capsule. (laughs) How are you? Good. Um, I have a personal haunting for you. What is it? So this actually happened, uh, I would say like a month or so ago, but I then I got attacked by a guy with a sword and I just forgot about it. (laughs) Um, So uh, an airplane crashed into the middle of a strawberry field in oxnard what is, wait did someone die yes <gasps> so the reason why this is a personal haunting is because i was driving to work and i was pissed that there was so much traffic right like there's never traffic going that direction to oxnard like people are trying to get out of oxnard they're tra- not trying to get into it yeah and so i'm going into it and we're all just at a dead stop gridlock traffic like as if we're on the 405 in la mm. and fine i was really angry and then finally i drive by it and i just see all these people in hazmat suits in the middle of a strawberry field and it i at first i was like did a car like drive off the freeway into the middle of this field because that happens sometimes as you guys know if you've listened to my personal hauntings long enough um and i thought like maybe the car caught on fire or Uh something but i'd never seen like people in hazmat suits out there before right and then um i like went into my office and i was talking to my coworker, and she was like no did you hear on the radio like a guy crashed his plane into the middle of the field 
So then I was talking later to my dad about it. And he said that one of his friends was on the freeway, maybe like 15 minutes before me and had seen as he's driving, sees this small little Cessna aircraft, like the kind Frederick Valentich used to fly. Yeah. uh, Coming down, like dipping to the freeway. And he it got so close to his car that he could see the person inside (gasps) the plane. And then he and my dad's friend was like, I'm dead. Like, this plane is about to hit me right now on the freeway. And then the plane veered at the last minute into the strawberry field. I'm so speechless right now. Is this not a crazy fucking haunted yeah, ass shit that so, happened? It's crazy because it's like, I don't know what to think. Because at first I was like, oh, that's so a plane crashed into the field. And then I was like, oh, that's sad. And uh, someone died. And then now you're telling me that like someone saw that person right before yes. they died. Yes. I'm assuming they were wearing like a helmet. I don't know. I didn't speak to my dad's friend personally. My dad was telling me this story secondhand. But like. I would assume a pilot's probably wearing sunglasses or a helmet or something, right? So I don't know if he, like, could see the guy's expression. But according to my dad, his fr- it, the plane got so close that he could see the guy in the cockpit. Yeah. I mean, depending on what kind of plane it was, he was probably wearing, uh, like, headphones yeah. and sunglasses. But pff, that's so crazy. I wonder if it was one of those situations where it was, like, a controlled crash and the pilot was like, okay, I could survive if I kept going straight, but then I'm going to hit these people in traffic and they might not survive. Yeah. So instead, I'm just going to go into this strawberry field and then it, I probably won't survive, but at least I won't hit anybody else. It could be that. Definitely. I remember there was some story uh, in L.A. where some guy safely landed on the freeway. Do you remember that? Some yeah. guy in a small plane? So maybe With this- his wife. Yeah. I remember you showed it to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That yeah. was on this show, too, I feel like. Yeah, there was, like, it. not enough. there, But they had, like, traffic cleared there. So they used the highway as, like, a runway. As a landing strip. Yeah. yeah. But it kind of sounds like what you're talking about is he was going sideways across traffic. Yeah. Like, if a monster truck was to run over a bunch of cars, it would be that except a plane. Yeah, like, diagonally. Yes. Against the flow of traffic. Whereas the other pilot situation we were talking about landed with the flow of traffic. Like, the traffic was stopped but it was going the correct direction on the freeway yeah yeah Yeah. i don't know it's just crazy to think like you like that guy my dad's friend saw that pilot in like his last few seconds that would fuck me up i know it'd be so heavy I mean, the only thing that would make that story that you just told me better is if you were like, yeah, and he looked at him and he winked. And then he disappeared and the plane crashed with no one inside. Yeah. You're right. That would make it better, unfortunately. It's just a sad story. (laughs) I know. But this is another reason why, unlike Frederick Valentich, which if you guys don't know what we're talking about, no time to explain. Go back and listen to every single one of our episodes ever. Um... Unlike Frederick Valentich, I have no desire to be in a small Cessna airplane. Unlike our friend Lauren, who is a badass and took pilot's lessons in a small Cessna. Like, I don't trust it because this shit happens. Okay, here, someone who is a pilot, explain this to me. And I mean, really fucking explain it, okay? Because I've fucked a pilot for a long time. (laughs) I was dating a pilot. He was a badass. He now fly. He's now a fucking uh, instructor for other fucking people in the Air Force. Okay, so I think he knows what the fuck he was talking about. Anyways, I don't understand how people die in a plane like a Cessna. Why can't you just jump out of that bitch with a parachute? I mean, obviously, sometimes you jump out and you get hit by a propeller or you jump out and some other shit goes wrong or the parachute doesn't fucking go like whatever. But why? Like, 
why not just have a fucking parachute all the time? It seems like a seatbelt to me. Like, I wouldn't drive a car without a seatbelt. Sometimes a seatbelt doesn't fucking work. You die anyways or something bad happens. But... Your odds are better. Your odds are so much better. So, like, I don't get that. Like, why? Especially if you're in the little Cessna. Like, you're you're telling me someone can't be like, oh, fuck this, like, stupid-ass plane coffin thing. Like, those planes, literally everyone dies in that plane. Yes. You know? Yeah. All the, it's all the planes that go down, for the most part, are those little tiny Cessnas. Yeah. And pilots will be like, oh, the Reddit, the Reddit fedora-wearing pilots yeah. will be like, oh, that's because those are usually not uh, professional. Well yeah, they're not well-maintained. And those pilots are not as skilled. And they're weekend warriors. And, and I'm like, well, now they're fucking dead because they didn't take a fucking parachute with them. You know what? I've said this before about my terrible fear of airplanes. I would feel better on an airplane if they gave me a parachute. I think about that all the time yeah. when I'm flying. Like when they're like, oh, uh, do you, will you help everyone out like you in this special place or whatever if there's an emergency? And I'm like, all these people are going to die. I'll help them to their death. Yeah. yeah. But like the, they're not going to survive. It's not going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. I'll help them in their final moments as they're gasping for air with like a drink cart through their brain. <laughs> our, our, yeah, I don't understand. Our chances on a commercial aircraft would be better, honestly, if we fucking all had parachutes on and they opened the fucking door, let that shit depressurize. Then everyone takes their seatbelt off and like does a fucking jump where we're all holding hands in a circle. You know, <laughs> the odds would be better, I feel like, for us than trying to fucking land the plane in a tree or land the plane on water or whatever it is and then blowing up a little raft. Oh, and if your fucking life vest doesn't inflote, blow to the side of it and then put your infant like in its own life vest. Like, no, no, no one's going to fucking survive that. No, dude, I'm so sedated when I get on airplanes (laughs) that there would someone would have to throw my limp unconscious body over their back and just like take one for the team and blow up my life vest for me because I take Xanax and Benadryl. I don't want to be conscious at all on any flight ever. And I have to get on an airplane tomorrow. I feel like you'll be the person who survives then because you know how they say. That's true. Drunk people. Yeah. Because they're relaxed in in car crashes. Yeah. I've known people before. Like, okay, so I had a friend in high school who got in a really bad car wreck where they were T-boned like on their side and they should have died. Basically, they had to be like taken out of the car with uh, the jaws of life and all that shit. But they just had some broken bones because they were asleep when it happened. They were in the passenger side asleep. And so their body just like went with it. They went with the flow. Yeah. Loosey goosey. Right. That's the way to do it, guys. Just go through your life half sedated. Um, and then when bad things happen to you, you either won't know about it or you won't care. Or, or you just parachute out of that bitch. Yeah. You'll be like, who cares? That's like when I went skydiving. The scariest. You went pro- skydiving? Yes. I've talked about it before on the show. I don't remember. Yeah. I went skydiving in like 2017 in an attempt to get over. No, no, no. This would have been 2013 in an attempt to get over my fear of, of airplanes because everyone kept telling me, no, you're not actually afraid of airplanes. You're afraid of heights. And so I was like, OK, well, what can I do to get over a fear of heights? I can go skydiving. Mm-hmm. I went skydiving. The worst part of that experience was being in that little fucking Cessna plane. Right. And it's like on the way up. You hear everything. It was it was larger than a Cessna. But you guys know what I'm talking about. It's still fucking small, like bullshit plane. I'm strapped to a guy who's like going to jump out with me. And then the guy I was dating at the time was like strapped to some other guy. And then we go all the way up. And I was like shaking 
the whole way up because I was like, this plane's going to crash before I can get a chance to like jump out of it. And then as soon as we got up to like whatever cruising altitude was, um, they were like, okay, who wants to go first? And I was like, me, me, get me the fuck out of this plane. And so then we like, I jumped first and right. I was fine. I was so relieved. As soon as I was out of the plane, yeah. I was like, fantastic. Now I don't care if this pilot crashes. Right. You know what I mean? Because I'm okay. And now you know that you are afraid of airplanes. Yeah, something about being in a confined space, metal bird screaming through the sky, like with people acting like it's normal around me, like makes me very uncomfortable. I feel like if you got your pilot's license and then you flew the plane, you'd probably feel better. You think so? I think so. I think that's like the next thing you need to do to see if you're actually afraid of airplanes (laughs) or if you just want to be the pilot. (laughs) If it's a control issue or if it's actually the airplane. Yeah, who's to say? I don't know, but it just seems like that's like you're just going to keep going through a tally list of what it is about flying. (laughs) Until I die in a plane because I've tried too many things to get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Actually, that reminds me of a story. Did you see that there was a guy in like Florida who just landed a plane a couple months ago with no experience because the pilot passed out? Yes. And I've watched several YouTube videos about similar situations. There was one where their pilot died have you seen that youtube video oh my god it's a youtube call it's like a family who chartered a private plane going from like miami to somewhere to florida i don't know and the pilot fucking died oh my god and so they're on the radio call and they're like yeah we're you know hello this is so and so i don't know i'm i have no experience uh like our pilot seems to be unresponsive like he's dead whatever and so then they're like talking to him and the person on the other line is like, oh, shit, does anybody have any like, does anybody here is anyone here a pilot who can talk to this guy? Because oh like the God. air traffic controller people, a lot of them aren't pilots, yeah. you know, and there's someone who's like, oh, yeah, I have experience with a jet that that's like similar to the one they're flying. And they're like, hey, so you're going to look in front of you. Do you see like a, a bunch of panels like lights to the right side? You're going to turn off this. You're going to turn on the autopilot and then turn off this and da, 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 da. And, it's, and they're like, meanwhile, they're trying to do all this shit. It's like a fucking 15 or no it's like a 30 minute long youtube video they're trying to do all this shit and there's like a dead dude right there no no scary i, I reject it that's frightening that's frightening yeah. as fuck in yeah. miami I, with it, mr 305 <laughs> <laughs> that was actually the only thing that pr- helped them they yeah, were saved the spirit yeah. of pitbull comes right <laughs> when you're in trouble in miami you just need to call upon the spirit of Pitbull. Because and he will, he's been there, done that. He's been there, done <laughs> <laughs> You took my life from negative to positive. Right. I just it, need y'all to know that. And if you're going through tough times. Don't. You're on a plane with a dead guy about to crash. Been there, been done, there that. done that. Yeah. Wow. Speaking of Dolly, I'd like to shout out <laughs> our town. <laughs> I'd like to shout out our donors for this episode. Big shout out to Kara H, British Cyborg, Patty, a.k.a. Lady Ducky, Alec J, a.k.a. AJ. Thank you all very oh, much. Wow. That was like a sexy voice. I'd, I'd like to thank Amy X, Brielle S, Gentry B, Patricia M, Dustin F, Emily L, Paige C, Brianna B, Kendall B, and GGL. And also, thank you so much to Paige C and Amy X, who gave donations of $69. Woo, 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 woo. Woo. Pew, pew, pew. 
that's the airplane crashing into oh. the strawberry field. Oh, um, someone died. Very okay. sad. But but the spirit of Pitbull lives on and right. that gives us all hope. I could sit here and talk to you about Pitbull for like 30 more minutes, but I feel like it's time to get into the story. I think we need to do an episode on Pitbull and I think it like I think there literally is enough haunted material there for an episode. I feel like he's a vampire. Like he's evergreen, you know, like he never disappears, he just takes on new forms. Okay, how about for episode 420 when we do get yes. there, it'll be on Pitbull and yes. we'll do like serious research and maybe by then we'll have enough like pole and clout that we can actually interview the show everybody tweet at pitbull right now i don't even know if he has a twitter but tweet at him yeah uh tell him to come on the show yeah i'm sure he's had haunted experiences too how could he have not right he's, he's a pitbull. vampire <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right natalia are you ready to hear this week's haunting i'm so ready part one part one norway norway natalia today's story takes place in norway <gasps> is this about santa not even close. Before we even get started, I do want to have a big disclaimer right from the jump, um, right from the top of the show. I just want to say I am an uncultured American, and in all likelihood, I will absolutely butcher the pronunciation of just about every single Norwegian name during this episode. Please accept my sincerest condolences in advance if anyone is listening who actually is either from Norway, has Norwegian heritage, or, you know, speaks any of the Scandinavian languages. I feel like the Scandinavians are so chill that they, like, wouldn't get mad about that. I still feel the need to apologize because when I saw an O with a slash through it, my <laughs> brain, like, half melted and I don't think I've recovered. <laughs> Since I'm pretty sure this is our very first Norwegian haunting, let's start with a quick intro to the country. According to Wikipedia, Norway, officially the Kingdom of Norway, is a Nordic country in Northern Europe, the mainland territory of which comprises the western and northernmost portion of the Scandinavian peninsula. I am going to show you a map, Natalia, and I would like you to describe Norway's location on a globe. Okay, while you're showing me this and pulling it up, I'm just going to say I'm really excited. You know, I love the Scandinavians. I really like what you guys have done with your part of the globe. And I like what you guys are, how you guys are living and what you guys are doing. I like what you guys have to offer. So look at, take a look at that little map and tell me uh, what you think. I'm just now realizing, although I don't think we've ever had a Norwegian haunting before, we have had a Finnish haunting very recently. Yeah. You talked about a guy that took a bunch of meth. Right. And blew himself up and survived. Right. I never realized that the Scandinavian countries look like dick and balls, but they kind of do, guys. I would say three fingers. So if you're picturing three fingers, you would have Finland on the side closest to Russia, then sandwiched in the middle, you have Sweden, and then the furthermost uh, finger is Norway. Or and three dicks next to each other. Who's to say? All right. So now, you know. <laughs> You're telling me it's a, not a dick and balls and the Baltic Sea is right there? The Baltic Sea? Okay. Now we've uncovered a new conspiracy. The Baltic Sea. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that tonight. And like, as I'm drifting off to sleep, the last thing I think about before I go to sleep is going to be like the Baltic Sea. Someone is definitely at some point in their life, that's gonna, they're going to hear this and it's going to be like the last thing that they ever hear before they die is going to be like the Finland and Norway are separated by the Baltic Sea. And then a plane crashes into their car while they're listening to this podcast on the freeway. Yeah. So Norway has a total area of 385,207 square kilometers or just under 150,000 square miles. As of January 2022, Norway has a population of over 5 million people. 
The country shares a long eastern border with Sweden at a length of 1,006 miles. It's bordered by Finland and Russia to the northeast and the Skagerrak Strait to the south, on the other side of which are Denmark and the United Kingdom. Norway has an extensive coastline facing the North Atlantic Ocean and the Barents Sea. The capital and largest city of Norway is Oslo, and its two official languages are Norwegian and Sami. Its national anthem is, Ja, vi elsker dette landet, or yes, we love this country. Natalia, I'm going to play you some of this anthem now to get us into like a very like amped Norwegian mood. I'm amped and I'm pumped already because Baltic Sea and now you just told me that the national anthem is called Ja, we love this country. (laughs) So I'm already at 100, but let's try to take it to 101. Here we go. Here we go. There's nothing to look at. It's just pure vibes. This sounds like a choir of angels slash uh, Halo. It's great. It's not what I was expecting. I was expecting you to be like, yeah, we love this country. We wake up every day and milk our cows and go in the snow. Right. Anyway, there you go. That's a choir singing uh, the song. Wow. Now, let me tell you a little bit more. Norway is divided into 11 counties that are then further subdivided into 356 municipalities. But our episode today takes place in the municipality of Bergen, located within the county of Vestland. Bergen has an oceanic climate with plentiful rainfall in all seasons, with intermittent snowfall during winter, but the snow usually melts quickly in the city. Average annual precipitation during the years 1961 to 1990 was 89 inches of rain a year. This is because Bergen is surrounded by mountains that cause moist North Atlantic air to undergo orographic lift, yielding abundant rainfall. It rained every day from the 29th of October 2006 to the 21st of January 2007, 85 consecutive days of rain. Bergen is the second largest city in Norway, covering 465 square kilometers or 180 square miles. And it is known as, quote, the city of seven mountains. Although confusingly, there are actually nine mountains that surround the city. Mm, All the mountains have to fight over which seven It's kind of like that. When you're reading about it, you're like everyone, it says in different articles, like everyone has a different opinion of which mountains these official seven mountains are. And it kind of reminded me of when Pluto wasn't a planet for a while. I'm sure maybe that's what happened here is like one of the mountains was thought to be too small to be a mountain. And Mm. so, you know, ancient people were counting and they were like, there's seven mountains here. And then later someone with like a telescope looked and was like no there's nine it's like mean girls but with mountains and they're like you can't sit here because on wednesdays we wear tectonic (laughs) plates (laughs) (laughs) these nine mountains are one ulriken two lovstaken three floy flagellet four damsgards flagellet five ask Ascoe Fagellet, six, Blamanen, seven, Lederhorn, eight, Rundimanen, and nine, Sandvikshvelt. 
Wow. Thank you. Yes. Um, no, I'm not Norwegian. I'm just very good at pronouncing things. So today's story begins on one of these mountains, and that's why I'm telling you about these mountains. Is it on Lederhorn? It's not on Lederhorn. Specifically, this story takes place on Ulriken in a remote spot known as Isdalen, which translates to Ice Valley. Wow. And I'm going to show you just a quick YouTube clip from a random vlog. And I'm probably not going to put this in the photo dump for this episode at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram because there's way too many things, too many images for this for this episode. But if you'd like to see it, all you have to do is go to YouTube and search Ulrikin Isdalen Ice Valley. And I guarantee you many, many, many videos will pop up explain what you're looking oh at. yeah okay so ali is showing me a video of what looks like uh every single james bond movie uh set it's like a sleek modern building overlooking a beautiful mountainous valley that's like covered in snow there are some areas that you can go up to and visit and there's like lookout points and people movers and stuff Isdalen or Ice Valley is kind of this remote lesser traveled part of the seven mountains and really nobody goes there part two the Isdal woman just before 10 a.m on Sunday November 29th 1970 a professor father and his two young daughters are out hiking the rocky hillsides of Isdalen or Ice Valley located just outside the Norwegian city of Bergen as the trio makes their way up and down the many hills jutting up from a pine tree-laden black lake, one of his daughters, age 12, clambers up ahead, scrambling excitedly over rocks and brush. Suddenly, she turns on her heel and comes running back to her father and sister. Daddy, she yells, there's a funny-looking mannequin over there. She points towards the area where she had just run from. Her father continues onward toward the spot where his daughter had just pointed. Upon peering over some boulders, his worst fears are soon realized. There, nestled tightly in a rocky crevice, he sees not a mannequin, but the burnt and charred body of a woman. What? When the call came into the Bergen police station that a body had been found in Ice Valley, they weren't quite sure what to expect. The caller had reported finding a burned up woman, but how could that be? This part of the country was frequently doused in heavy rainfall this time of year, and the valley was not a well-traveled area. How could a woman have been found burned to death there? The policemen began the dangerous hike up the steep cliffs to where the woman's body had reportedly been found. As they approached the location, the smell of burnt human flesh singed their nostrils and made their eyes water. So this is like a recent body. Like it hasn't been there for such a long time that it doesn't smell anymore. Exactly, yeah. It's It smells, there's flesh on it, they can tell what it is. It's not so decayed that you're just looking at bones. Mm. Drawing closer still, peering over a boulder, they saw her. She was laid out on her back, wedged in a crevice, her entire front was burned badly, and her arms had been so severely damaged that they were frozen in a boxer's pose, something known to happen to burn victims due to extreme heat shrinking and shriveling the normally flexible skin and muscles of the arms. 
Natalia, I'm going to show you some pictures of this crime scene, and I'd like you to describe them to our listeners. What the fuck? I did not want to see this. I just, like, pictured it in my mind. Here you go. Where do you find this shit? Where did you find this story? I'm not going to answer because you're going to have to wait and find out. Yeah, this is, like, really fucked up, like I thought it would look. Um, okay, so when you said it, this person was wedged in between, like, a, some, a crevice or whatever, I was picturing, like, a, a huge cliff face with a, like, a crack in it, and then there's a body in there. But no, no, no. This is, like, picture a bunch of big rocks. You know how the side of a mountain has a bunch of like crumbling rocks on the side and there's like little shrubs and stuff that are growing up through that now in between some of those rocks just almost looks like uh like as if they had laid down there or something there is a body and yeah it's super I mean it's kind of hard to tell because this is like a black and white photo and it looks like perhaps there's some snow as well so the body just looks like really uh, like stiff and kind of bloated but it's like charred and black and I mean it definitely doesn't look I don't know it's so weird like it's hard to describe well and you can kind of see why the little girl thought it was a mannequin at first right because it it looks looks so stiff you can scroll to the next photo there should be one more and then in the next photo I see people in hazmat suits uh like kind of going over the crime scene and it looks like it's a very lush side of a mountain like these trees still have leaves on them and uh yeah they're taking i guess samples of the crime scene probably taking photos analyzing the crime scene so now i'm going to read you some excerpts from the crime scene police report quote young woman Height, 164 centimeters. Slim with broad hips. Well built. Brownish black hair. Small round face. Brown eyes, small ears. Objects found near woman. Two small plastic bottles containing water. An empty bottle of St. Halvard liqueur. A woolen jumper. A scarf. Nylon stockings. A purse a matchbox, a fur hat, one burned rubber boot, one watch showing a time of 10.10 a.m., earrings, ring, burned pieces of paper, and a small metal ring likely used to hold a passport photo in place, and a burned umbrella. I wonder, was this like a hiker that accidentally caught themselves on fire because they set that liquor on fire on somehow? They were like trying to light a cigarette or something or try to make a fire and they like were wearing all this cold weather stuff and so some of it got caught. Well, the interesting thing is these items of clothing that they're talking about were found near the body, not on the body. Were they burned at all? Yes. Okay, so but yeah, if the clothes had caught on fire, then they would be trying to take them off. That's a good point. So the report also noted that all of the clothing on and near the Isdal woman had all of their labels cut off. 
making it impossible to identify where they had come from. Okay, this is like the Christmas tree Jane Doe story. Yes. Now, now I'm thinking that this person perhaps did this intentionally. I think probably the police are running all of these ideas through their head. Like, I yeah. can't imagine, especially in a place like Norway where crime is super low. Right. And this takes place in the, 19, in the year 1970. Mm-hmm. So crime was even lower than it is today. And they're not used to seeing like mangled bodies like this. I'm sure they had an occasional accident or, you know, 1970, there's wars going on in different countries. And I'm sure people were exposed to this type of stuff. And yeah. But I don't think anyone was prepared on that police force to come across this scene. It's so right. bizarre. Not on their own Ulrich and Din. Yeah, not on their own, not in their own Istalin. Yeah. I wonder, too, because I know if you buy stuff sometimes at TJ Maxx or something, they'll cut the label off because they, I don't know. They do? Sometimes. It's stupid because I'm like, I know this is Abercrombie and Fitch, but oh, I didn't know they'll that. cut it off. That's so, interesting. Who knows? In addition to this strange detail of the labels being cut off for clothes, the bottles, which were half melted and seemed to have contained water, had their labels rubbed off them. The burned pieces of paper with a metal passport ring were hypothesized to have been the destroyed passport of the woman, but it was impossible to tell what the pages had been. Natalia, I'm going to show you some photos of some of these objects that were found near the woman's body, and I would like you to describe them to our listeners. So I'm looking at photos of jewelry and a watch. The jewelry is like really gaudy cocktail jewelry like big uh, cocktail rings and these earrings. They're not like regular stud earrings. They're like huge, like bigger than quarters. They're ornate, right? Yeah, they're ornate. They've got a lot going on. They look like something a princess would wear. They look fancy to me, yeah. Fancy. Same with the watch. The watch has like an interesting dye. It looks like nice. It looks like a luxurious like designer watch. Um, The flasks or the containers or whatever these are look like kind of like camping containers where the top is connected to it so it like can't like a get canteen. away yeah like a canteen uh the umbrella is super burned up looks like a piece of modern art and that's a what is that thing it's like a piece of uh i believe that's a piece of the scarf okay yeah it's a like burned up piece of fabric yeah you can look at that so that's just a diagram of where some of these things were found the caption is in norwegian so i don't like you don't have to read it unless I guess you want to try. But yeah, it just shows like arrows pointing to the different areas where some of these objects were found near the woman's body. Yeah. I mean, it really, aside from the fact that there's a dead body there, it doesn't it doesn't look unlike someone who was maybe like a drifter, who was living perhaps uh, in these rocks or something like that. But uh, or like perhaps someone who was camping and was just kind of a dick and like left their shit there and left trash. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, like living in L.A., if I was hiking and I came across these objects without a dead body. uh, I wouldn't think anything of it. I wouldn't think anything of it. That's kind of an aside. But I I guess I just mean like here in L.A., I wouldn't think twice. But in Norway, where crime is super low, homelessness is pretty rare. Like it's odd to Mm. be hiking and come across these burnt up objects. Yeah. Once the woman's body and the items around her had been logged into the crime scene report, police shipped her body off to Goddess Institute at the University Hospital in Bergen. The autopsy revealed that the woman had died due to a combination of incapacitation by phenobarbital 
and poisoning by carbon monoxide. According to Wikipedia, soot was found in her lungs, indicating that she was alive as she burned and her neck was bruised, possibly from a fall or by a blow. The fur hat, which had been found underneath her body, was found to have traces of petrol or gasoline on it. Analysis of her blood and stomach showed that she had consumed somewhere between 50 and 70 Phenomal brand sleeping pills, and found next to her body were a further 12 sleeping pills. At autopsy, her teeth and jaw were removed due to her unique gold-filling dental work, and tissue samples of her organs were taken. Natalia, what do you make of this autopsy report? Hold on a second. They had they had a bunch of sleeping pills, but then also poison in their system? So, poison from the sleeping pills. Okay. Like, if you take too many sleeping pills, it'll kill you because it's poisonous. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this person, before they died, had consumed a bunch of sleeping pills. Between 50 to 70. Okay. So that sounds like an intentional overdose. But the... And the... So I'm trying to think. Okay. Did they do, like, an overdose and then they had soaked their clothing in gasoline and lit themselves on fire? It's weird, right? Especially because soot was found in the lungs. So they were still alive. They were still alive as they burned. Yeah. Maybe unconscious. We don't know. um, But definitely still alive. And you would think if you took 50 to 70 sleeping pills, wouldn't that be sufficient enough to kill yourself? Why go the extra mile by making sure that you can douse yourself in gasoline before you pass out? I don't know. It's it's weird, right? It's definitely weird. No, it's very strange. It's very haunted. I'm hooked. Keep going. Completely baffled and with no other information to go on, the Bergen police force made an appeal to media outlets throughout Norway. So intriguing was the mystery that as quickly as the day following the discovery of her body, articles were already circulating throughout the country. According to an article for the BBC written by journalist Helie Chung, police issued an appeal for eyewitnesses. They say the woman was around 5 foot 4.5 inches tall with long brownish-black hair, a small round face, brown eyes, and small ears. She appeared to be aged somewhere between 25 and 40 years old and wore her hair in a ponytail tied with a blue and white print ribbon at the time of death. Without a name, the woman becomes known as the Isdal woman, named after the area she was found, Isdalen. The media appeal would pay off, and soon tips began flooding into the police station. One of these tips would lead to a discovery that would only serve to deepen the mystery. Three days after the Isdal woman's body was found, a tip came in involving an abandoned suitcase that had been left at a railway station in Bergen. In the 1960s and 70s, travelers coming into Bergen by train could check their luggage at a kiosk before traveling into the city itself. When the traveler was ready to pick up their luggage, they would go back, hand a ticket corresponding to the luggage to the worker at the kiosk, and the worker would hand them back the luggage after collecting a storage fee. It was uncommon for luggage to be abandoned. In this case, two suitcases had been abandoned at the kiosk since November 23, 1970, or six days before the Isdal woman's body had been discovered. What was the woman doing during those six days? Before we try to piece that together, let's first examine what was found in these suitcases. 
Hmm. Well, okay. I have an idea. The ribbon that she was wearing in her hair was blue and white. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was from Finland because Finland's flag is blue and white. That is a good hypothesis. We're going to talk a little bit more about where she could have possibly been from, but I like where your head's at. Just keep those wheels turning. Keep thinking about where she could have been from because that's what the police are thinking at this point. Like we've got to look at all of the information figure out where she likely came from and then put out like a bulletin to that country and be like, hey, do you know, like, has anyone reported a missing loved one? Right. Yeah. No. Tell me what's in the suitcases. I just wanted everyone to know that I was really smart because I saw that before you told me that was a clue. It's beautiful. (laughs) Okay, Natalia, I'm going to show you some pictures and I'd like you to describe them to the audience and then I will explain what the pictures are. Uh, okay, so these are pictures of suitcases, but they're like those briefcase-style suitcases where it's like hard-sided and you flip those little locks to open it up. And then looks like two sort of squeeze tube uh, things. I don't know what you call those things. Cream. Just some yeah. type of cream, right? Squeeze like tube lotion. cream thing. Oh, and what appears to be fingerprints on, on glasses. Yes. According to an article for historyofyesterday.com written by author C.S. Vole, quote, contained within these two abandoned suitcases were the following items, a Norwegian roadmap, a steel spoon, a sewing kit from Geneva, a shoe shop bag from Rome, a variety of wigs, various denominations of money, including German, Norwegian, Swiss, British, and Belgian, prescription-free glasses, eczema cream, and various other items. All items were once again without labels. The glasses would serve to be pivotal, though, since a fingerprint on one of the lenses matched the fingerprints of the corpse, (gasps) thus linking the two objects together. So they know this is her suitcase. Mm. They also found a writing pad with a sequence of letters and numbers scrawled on the first page, although the police could not discern the meaning behind the code. This is a spy. I knew it. A shopping bag found in one suitcase provided the first solid lead. It bore the name of Oscar Rortvet's footwear store in the Norwegian city of Stavanger. Police soon interviewed the shop owner's son, Rolf Rortvet, who remembered selling her the blue rubber boots found at the crime scene. In later years, Rolf would recount the encounter as follows. She was a customer who took up space and asked a lot of questions and spent a long time making up her mind. Her English was poor, and I remember a certain peculiar scent. A few years later, when garlic had become more common in Norway, I recognized the scent, and it made me think of the Isdal woman. That's what she smelled like. But in 1970, no one smelled of garlic here. Now everybody does. Rorvet and his colleagues would describe the woman's physical characteristics. Medium height, curvy, round face with dark brown eyes, framed by dark hair. Using this description, police drafted a sketch of what the woman may have looked like. Natalia, can you please describe this sketch to our audience? Uh, I have no idea how they're going to like make this look like anything. You're telling me about a woman with brown eyes and brown hair and a small face? Oh, okay. <laughs> Just describe it. 
okay, I'm looking at a painting of a woman with uh, brown hair and brown eyes and a face. And she's wearing a turtleneck and it's like like with a marker. And it looks well like done. she has cat eyes. A plus. I don't know if that was just like how that artist draws people. Like if they have like the one type of eye that they always do, but she's got the cat eye makeup on. She looks alluring. Yeah, I mean, it looks more sexy than I thought. But it also is like, I was expecting like a professional sketch. And that looks like something you or I could draw. It's definitely 1970s quality. When I look (laughs) at it, it reminds me of like a sewing pattern Mm. from the 70s. And you'll see like, you know, little illustrations of people. And to me, it looks very 70s, her hairstyle as well. Right. With this description and sketch in tow, the police begin visiting hotels in the surrounding area. Since the woman's suitcase had been checked in at the train station on November 23rd, and her body had been discovered November 29th, investigators theorized that the woman must have been staying somewhere in the area. Norway in the 1970s was extremely homogenous and comprised of mostly traditional Scandinavian-looking people. Blue eyes, blonde hair, fair skin, and the Isdal woman's unique features dark hair, golden skin, dark eyes, garlic scent, and an accent seemed to point to her being a foreigner rather than a Scandinavian. As the police went door to door to different hotels interviewing patrons and employees alike, they started to get some hits. The first alleged sighting of the Isdal woman came at the Hotel St. Svithun near the shoe shop that the woman had supposedly purchased her rubber boots and umbrella at. C.S. Vol goes on to write the following in his article for historyofyesterday.com. Quote, the receptionist at the front desk described the woman as being dark-haired, golden skin, wide hips without being fat, speaks poor English. The woman in question had stated she was Vanilla Lork from Belgium. She had a gap in her front teeth, something regularly remarked upon by witnesses, and a distinctive gold crest dental work on about 10 of her teeth which was a very unusual sight in Norway. One stumbling block appeared. Fenella Lork did not turn up in the hotel registries of Bergen. Kripos handwriting experts analyzed the hotel registration documents of all foreign women staying in Norwegian hotels, uncovering that she had used new identities and new passports at different hotels. The identities she used in Norway were Elizabeth Leenhofer, Claudia Nielsen, Genevieve Lancier, Alexia Zarna-Merchez, Claudia Tilt, Vera Harley, and Finella Lork. Wow, she's really good at making up names. Those are really pretty. The authorities confirmed these identities to be fake, but they never recovered the fake passports. With so much uncertainty surrounding her identity, eyewitnesses who interacted with her became crucial in filling out information about the Isdal woman's character. Alvhild Ragnes, who worked in the dining room of the Neptune Hotel in Bergen, remembered encountering the woman herself. Quote, Back then, single women in the dining room were not a common phenomenon, but this woman came in with a proud posture, bound a table, and settled down comfortably. She was obviously a woman who was used to traveling on her own. The woman made a lasting impression on Olivehild because she radiated intense self-confidence. Olivehild Ragnus, just 21 years old at the time, would go on to say of the Isdal woman, Quote, my first impression of her was one of elegance and self-assuredness, she tells the BBC. She looked so fashionable. I wished to be able to mimic her style. In fact, I remember her winking at me. 
From my perspective, it felt as though she thought I had been staring a bit too much at her. She winked at that person? Okay, mm-hmm. maybe she's a sex worker. On one occasion while I was serving her, she was in the dining hall, sitting right next to, but not interacting with, two German Navy personnel, one of which was an officer. Get it. After speaking with Alvhild, investigators moved on to questioning other staff at the hotel. Staff informed police that, in addition to speaking English, the woman also used some German phrases. Staff reported being very familiar with the woman, since she often requested a change of room. On one occasion, she asked to change rooms three different times. A maid reported that she had entered the Isdal woman's room to clean it one afternoon. Upon entering, she was surprised to find an upturned table blocking the hallway on the other side of the door. On one occasion, she was seen meeting with a gray-haired man in the dining room of the Neptune Hotel, but they merely sat across from each other, unsmiling, never having a conversation, and only talking to the staff in German. She would eventually slip a piece of paper to the gray-haired man, watching him read it with apparent sad eyes. As investigators tried to make sense of the Isdal woman's erratic behavior, rumors in Norwegian newspapers began to fly. Could the woman have been a spy? Meanwhile, back at Kripos, the Norwegian National Crime Investigation Service, the police had finally cracked the code on the first page of the Isdal woman's writing pad. So if you remember, when they first searched her suitcases... Yeah, they found the writing pad with all the letters and numbers and they couldn't figure out what it meant. Yes. So Natalia, I'm going to show you this writing pad and I'd like you to read the code out loud to our listeners. You can read all of it or if you get bored, you can just read part of it. Okay, so I'm looking at, I'm looking at a piece of paper that has been written on in what appears to be like a fine blue sharpie, and on the there's three columns. On the left column, it says 10m, 11m, 16ml. No, 10m, 11m, 16ml, 17m, 19mg, 20m, 23mo, 24m. 31MBH3AR, and then in the other column uh, to the right, it says A23A29F, A30, M14R, M15, MLV, M22, M31W, 1417N82. I mean, it goes on like this. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of letters and numbers, right? Yeah, you get the point. Investigators were able to determine that the numbers and letters scribbled on the pad of paper by the Isdal woman were actually shorthand for different cities she had stayed in on different days. For example, 20M23MO was shorthand for 20-23MARCH Oslo. With the code cracked, the Bergen police made calls to the different police stations in these cities, asking for help in their investigation. Calls were made to Stavanger, Bergen, Trondheim, Oslo, and even Paris, France, to name a few. The case of who the Isdal woman could be was steadily becoming an international affair. According to that same article by journalist Helie Chung for the BBC, police find that the woman had stayed in the following hotels under these names. Genevieve Lancier from Louvain stayed in Viking Hotel Oslo from 21 to 24 March 1970. Claudia Tielt from Brussels stayed in Hotel Bristol Bergen from 24 to 25 March. Claudia Tielt from Brussels stayed in Hotel Scandia Bergen from 25 March to 1 April. 
Claudia Nielsen from Ghent stayed in k a Hotelet Stavanger from 29 to 30 October. Alexia Zarn Merchez from Jubjana stayed in Neptune Hotel Bergen from 30 October to 5 November. Vera Jarl from Antwerp stayed in Hotel Bristol Trondheim from 6 to 8 November. Fenella Lork stayed in St. Svithun Hotel Stavanger from 9 to 18 November. Ms. Leinhofer stayed in Hotel Rasenkrantz Bergen from 18 to 19 November. And Elizabeth Leinhofer from Ostend stayed in Hotel Hard Hardeheimen Bergen from 19 to 23 November. They were able to determine that all of these aliases were the same woman through handwriting analysis. At the time, anyone staying in a hotel in Europe was asked to present a passport at check-in and fill out a form containing the following information. Name, check-in date, check-out date, location traveling from, and location traveling to. Some hotels also required a person to write down their city of birth and their occupation. Handwriting experts in Norway cross-examined these registration cards and determined that the same hand had signed each of the aforementioned aliases. Natalia, I'm going to show you some of these signatures now, and if you can maybe point out some things that you think look the same between all these signatures. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. They're not... Oh, that's crazy. How do I explain what I'm thinking? Let me think really hard. Okay. I don't I don't have a vocabulary to describe handwriting. But do they look similar to you at all? If you were to show me all of these, I would be like, yes and no. I mean, they're written, like, some are written in uppercase with, like, more spaces between them. Some are written in lowercase. Some are written in cursive. Some are written in, like, cursive with, like, a big scripty sort of tail on some of the, like, uh, the first letter of the name. Yeah, it's weird. There are similarities, especially with the numbers. The numbers you can't really fake. Yeah, so at the very bottom, I think the two that look closest together... Um, are two signatures that have these like big long tails that go underneath the entire signature. So like the first letter, right. if it's an A, then the like second part of the A continues on underneath the entire signature. Right. But whoever wrote these, which is mysterious because they all look like they're trying to be different. So yeah. whoever made these signatures was like, oh, I need these all to appear like they're not the same person. Although they're written in the same handwriting, steps have been taken to try to conceal that fact. Yeah. So I'm going to post this picture to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram if you guys want to weigh in on what you think the similarities and differences are. Why was this woman going through such lengths to hide her identity? Investigators went hotel to hotel speaking with anyone who may have come into contact with her hoping for more insight into the Isdal woman's actions. Slowly, more witnesses from hotel staff, including maids and restaurant employees, came forward with curious tidbits. Journalist C.S. Vole goes on to write, quote, During the Isdal woman's stay at the Hotel Rosencrantz in Bergen, 18-19 November, a maid rushed into her room, intent on making the bed, when she noticed two people seated across from each other. The Isdal woman, dressed in a black dress, on the bed, and a well-built, blonde-haired man on the couch. The maid apologized profusely and asked if she could make the bed. Without saying a word, the Isdal woman stood up, allowing her to go about her task. Both the Isdal woman and her visitor remained completely silent while the maid worked. 
To the maid, it looked like the dark-haired woman was grieving. After sleeping only one night at the Rosencrantz, the Isdal woman would switch to the Hotel Hordeheimen. On her last registration form at the Hotel Hordeheimen, 1923 November, she purposefully changed her usual handwriting into a clunky scrawl, suggesting a feeling of being pursued or a dramatic change. Hotel staff would often notice how she moved an armchair into the hallway when she occupied her room in the Hotel Hordeheimen, then moving it back inside when she was out. A worker at a home furnishing shop in Bergen also remembered an encounter with the Isdal woman. She entered the shop, accompanied by a young, dark-haired man, with whom she was engaged in an argument. Eventually, they bought a wall mirror before leaving. Who were these men? Why was the Isdal woman seen with so many different-looking people? While police were still puzzling over these questions, the autopsy results were finalized. According to C.S. Vol, the autopsy found there to be at least 50 sleeping pills in her stomach. All of the pills were not fully released into her bloodstream, which meant that it was not the cause of death, although it would have been enough to make her very drowsy. Soot particles in her airways pointed to her being alive at the time of burning. The cause of death was ultimately ruled to be carbon monoxide poisoning. Moreover, there was also an unexplained bruise on the side of her neck, which could have been the result of a fall or blow. Author Hellyer Chung writes for the BBC, There are no signs that the woman had been ill prior to her death. The autopsy also finds that the woman had never been pregnant and never had a child. Her death is likely to have been a painful one. Quote, There were smoke particles in her lungs, which shows that the woman was alive while she was burning. The investigator at the scene of the crime found a trace of petrol in the ground below the woman's body, which means, quote, we can state with certainty that petrol had been used to set her alight. She had a high concentration of carbon monoxide in her blood, and experts also established that there could have been upwards of 70 sleeping pills from a foreign brand called Phenomol in her stomach, although they had not been fully absorbed into her bloodstream before she died. Days before Christmas, only three weeks after authorities found the body, the criminal commissioner, Oscar Hordness, held a press conference refuting that it was a murder or related to anything nefarious. On the 5th of February, 1971, the authorities decided to shelve the case. Deciding that they had done all they could possibly do, they ruled it a suicide, and the decision was made by Bergen police to bury the Isdal woman in an unmarked grave in Mollendal Cemetery. She was laid to rest in a white coffin, decorated with tulips, lilacs, and carnations, and lowered into eternal slumber beneath the wet dirt. A zinc-lined coffin had been selected for the Isdal woman, since zinc was known to preserve bodies. The hope was that one day, the woman's family would come searching for her, and her body would be in good enough condition to identify and move. But for now, there was no family to cry for the woman. The only mourners in attendance at her funeral were the very police officers who had found her. 18 members of the police force in total were seen at her gravesite, carrying black umbrellas and wearing somber expressions. They watched as the coffin disappeared from their eyesight and was covered with dirt. A priest said a few words, and then the ceremony was over. And Natalia, I'm going to show you two pictures from the funeral. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it looks like a funeral, and then there's a white coffin, looks like a nice coffin being buried into the ground, and there's just a bunch of dudes in black, like, around looking, and there's a priest in, like, traditional priest garb, and now there's pallbearers taking the coffin up, and a priest is leading up the stairs. Um, Yeah, this seems like... It seems like it was a really big deal to this police department because I'm trying to think here in L.A., like there's no chance if they find a unidentified corpse that they're going to have a funeral for it. Oh, and definitely the police not. department is going to show up and mourn and they're going to have like a priest and bury them like there's that just wouldn't happen. So yeah. the fact that they are taking the steps to do this sort of traditional ceremony and and then and give this person um, a traditional burial says a lot about that community and how uh, out of place this occurrence was. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think the detail about them giving her like a nice zinc lined coffin to help preserve the body for longer, like really shows that this was super uncommon. Like people, unidentified bodies didn't just like show up in Norway in the 1970s. Right. Part three, the modern investigation. Although the Isdal woman had been buried, Her story was far from over. Let's talk about some of the modern developments with the Isdal woman's case. According to Wikipedia, in 2005, a Bergen resident who was 26 in 1970 told a local newspaper that after seeing the sketch circulated, he had suspected that the dead woman was a woman he had seen five days before the body was found when he was hiking on the hillside at Floyen. Surprisingly, she was dressed lightly for the city rather than a hike, and was walking ahead of two men wearing coats who looked, quote-unquote, southern. She appeared resigned and seemed about to say something to him, but did not. He went to someone he knew at the police to report this, but the police told him to forget about it. Therefore, neither his name nor his alleged sighting was recorded at that time. In 2016, the case was reopened, and NRK commissioned the American artist Stephen Massal to create six alternative sketches of the Isdal woman, which were shown to people who had seen her. In 2018, nearly 50 years after the unknown woman's body was first discovered, a true crime podcast called Death in Ice Valley was launched. The podcast was a collaboration between BBC World Service and NRK, the Norwegian radio and television public broadcasting company. In this podcast, hosts Mari Higraf and Neil McCarthy unearthed new information and clues about the Isdal woman's identity. Are you ready to hear these new clues, Natalia? Of course I am. First, the podcast uncovered some discrepancies. For example, in 2018, when the only living policeman from the original investigative team was interviewed, he stated that when he saw the Isdal woman, he noticed that there was a small campfire at her feet. However, in the original crime scene photos and report, there is no mention of a campfire. In fact, the report goes out of its way to say that the fire appeared to have been set on the woman herself, not near her, but on her. You and I are only able to see a few publicly available crime scene photos, but the makers of the Death in Ice Valley podcast were able to see the originals. Host Neil McCarthy described the state of the body as follows, quote, The body is in between the boulders. The body itself is in a very burned state down to the sinew and tendon. It's gone through all the skin. All the clothes have gone. It must have been a horrifically painful way to die. 
Higruff and McCarthy also gained access to the original police reports and discovered that the Isdal woman's jaw, along with several tissue samples of different organs, had been preserved at Kripos prior to her burial. Higruff immediately began the daunting task of tracking these items down. And she did eventually find them. Natalia, I'm going to show you some pictures of the Isdal woman's jaw, and I'd like you to describe them to our audience. So here is the first picture. Oh, wow. This is definitely a spy. 100% this is a spy. And I'm saying that because this person's jaw has tons of gold teeth and false teeth. And, like, there's even one gold cap tooth that's, like, uh, connected to a different gold-capped tooth. Like, they're, like, melded together. This is just not normal dental work at all. Like, it makes me think that some of these are, like, cyanide capsules where you, like, bite into it or, I don't know, something. It's not normal at all. There's something weird. Yeah, and the police report notes that the Isdal woman had distinctive teeth. Especially in Scandinavia, this type of dental work was not done. So they knew she couldn't be from Norway, Sweden, or Finland. Fourteen of them were filled, and she had several gold crowns. This was especially unusual for someone in her age range, and is not the type of dental work seen in Norway. The jaw was sent to Professor Giselle Bang for analysis, who wrote the following. Upper jaw, 8+, plus, intact, moderate wear, occlusally, 7+, plus, preformed gold crown, 6+, plus, missing, 5+, plus, combination crown, gold with acrylic front. 4 plus, combination crown, gold with acrylic front. 3 plus, D silicate cement, cement. 2 plus, B silicate cement. 1 plus, combination crown, gold lingually with acrylic front. Plus 1, combination crown, gold lingually with acrylic front. Plus 2 intact. Recognizing that forensics have come a long way since 1970, NRK and the BBC funded several different kinds of new tests on the tissue samples and teeth, including something called isotope analysis. Natalia, have you ever heard of isotope analysis? Yeah, I have. Explain it. That's how they, well, they can look at the isotopes and see like what chemicals something is made of, right? So for this, is it is it like dating? You can see how old something is. No, not quite. It's um, it's actually really fucking cool. I had never heard of it before. Um, but I'm gonna read you an article by Aaron Blakemore for National Geographic entitled "Where You Grew Up, What You Ate, Your Bones Record Your Life." Quote: What's on your plate? The answer doesn't just matter for your next dinner. It's an issue of critical importance to archaeologists who can infer everything from individual diets to large-scale population movements based on the chemistry of an ancient bone sample. Stable isotope analysis, the study of the nuances of elements in archaeological materials, can unlock all sorts of secrets about climate, diet, and the geographical origins of bones and other materials. Stable isotope analysis looks at the isotopes, or atoms with extra or missing neutrons, of different elements. Unlike unstable isotopes such as carbon-14, which degrades over time, stable isotopes never decay. There are over 250 known stable isotopes, and 80 of the periodic table's first 82 elements have them. Both organic and inorganic compounds contain these isotopes, and their ratios relative to one another act like a signature. According to C.S. Vol, the Norwegian Criminal Investigative Service, or CRIPOS, and University of Bergen start conducting isotope analysis on her teeth 
looking at this chemical signature left by the elements that made up her teeth as they were being formed. The tests involve oxygen isotope analysis, which can reveal the type of water the woman drank as she grew up mm. and which areas the water came from. Strontium isotope analysis, which can reflect the types of food the woman ate and the types of soil in the area where she grew up. According to Wikipedia, this isotope analysis of the woman's teeth indicated that the woman had been born in or about 1930, plus or minus four years, in or near Nuremberg, Germany, but had moved to France or the France-Germany border as a child. This reinforced earlier analysis of her handwriting, which suggested that she had been educated in France or a neighboring country. Analysis also indicated she had been to a dentist in either East Asia, Central Europe, Southern Europe, or South America. In 2018, NRK and the BBC World Service published Death in Ice Valley podcast, which included interviews with eyewitnesses and forensic scientists, also suggesting that the Isdal woman's birthplace would likely have been southern Germany or the French-German border region, and that she was likely born around 1930, plus or minus four years. She was also likely raised in French-speaking Belgium. In June 2019, the BBC revealed that listeners of the podcast had given some more clues. Colleen Fitzpatrick, a geneticist with the DNA Doe Project, contacted the Death in Ice Valley team to offer her help in identifying the woman through genetic genealogy isotope testing of autopsied tissues. It has been revealed that she is of mtDNA haplogroup H24, indicating a matrilineal line of descent originating in Southeast Europe or Southwest Asia. In 2019, after a publication on the case in Le Républicain Lorraine, an inhabitant of Forbach, France, claims to have had a relationship with the woman in the summer of 1970. The woman, a polyglot, a polyglot supposedly had a Balkan accent. What's a polyglot? Polyglot means you speak a lot of languages. I'm calling bullshit on this guy's story. I think he just wanted to be like, I fucked the Isdal woman, like this hot <laughs> chick that like there's this mystery surrounding right. who could have been a spy. And he's like, oh, yeah, I never brought it up before, but I definitely banged her. And she had a Balkan accent and pretended to be 26 years old, but often dressed herself up to look younger and refused to share any personal details with me. That's literally what he said. Uh, OK. She is said to have often received scheduled phone calls from abroad. The resident managed to rifle through her belongings and found various wigs and colorful clothes. He had also pilfered a photograph of the woman riding a horse. Suspecting she was a spy, he considered contacting the authorities but was afraid to do so. His story and the photograph were published in a subsequent issue of the newspaper. But it's bullshit. In mm. my opinion, it's bullshit. All right. Part four, the theories. Okay, Natalia, we're about to get into the theories. But before we get into the theories, is there anything like that stands out to you? Do you have any theories of your own so far? I don't know. This is a real head scratcher. I don't know what's going on. I mean, part of me is like, okay, could this person be, I don't know, a sex worker of some kind? But then I'm like, why are they sad? Like you, if you're yeah. a, if you're a sex worker, you aren't, like, sad. Like, no one wants to fuck the sad sex worker. Right. You're selling a fantasy yeah, to exactly. these men. Yeah. yeah. And um, that's weird. Then I'm like, well, maybe this person is a spy. That seems more likely. But then why are they... I don't know. They seem like they're a spy to me. But then why are they sad? 
to be a spy because you're a spy that's awesome yeah (laughs) well these are great questions and why are their teeth really fucked up like those are not normal teeth she seems so distinctive that it's crazy that she hasn't been identified Look, you guys heard the scientific terms of like the teeth are like BA15 subjunctional, whatever. Those were just fucked up. Look at the pictures. Go to at Let's Get Haunted. Look at those pictures and tell me that if you saw someone that with that smile, your one thought just wouldn't be act like everything's normal. Don't make them feel uncomfortable. My brother had silver cap tooth and his cap looked like normal though it looked like medical that doesn't that looks like someone poured gold gold in this person's mouth and was like ha, 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 good ha. enough yeah, yeah. yeah like they're weird well let's go through these theories theory number one a spy which you touched upon one of the main theories flying around norway at the time that this mystery was unfolding was that the isdal woman could have been some sort of spy in an interview with the bbc famous crime author gunnar stolison said There weren't too many foreign tourists in Bergen in 1970, and the fact that the woman seemed wealthy and well-traveled sparks a lot of speculation. Quote, this was during the Cold War, and there were definitely a lot of spies in Norway, including Russian spies. There were also Israeli agents operating in Norway, as shown three years later when Mossad agents killed a man in Lillehammer they had mistaken for a terrorist, he adds. Nobody knew this at the time, but decades later, it would come to light that the Norwegian secret police were looking into who the Isdal woman was. Local Bergen police even reported feeling like the death of the woman was covered up and the case was closed suspiciously fast because the secret police told them to make it go away. So Mossad is, so we when we think of spies, I feel like we normally think of like the Russians and the Americans, yeah. right? And maybe James Bond from, right. from London town, foggy London town. Yeah. But there are also at this time were countries like Israel who had a pretty big presence of secret agents. And you might be thinking like, why? Like, that's interesting. Like, why was Israel sending secret agents into like places like Norway? And the reason is because Following World War II, people of Jewish descent were really interested in finding Nazis and bringing them to justice because once like Hitler killed himself, the Berlin Wall, like all of these Nazis were trying to escape being punished for their crimes, for war crimes. So a lot of them were trying to assume different identities and escape to different places. So then Israel formed this organization called Mossad and they would go out and they would try to like uncover who these people were and kill them. So in this case, they had mistaken three years after the Isdal woman goes missing, Mossad agents were in Lillehammer in Norway because they killed somebody thinking it was a Nazi terrorist and then were like, oops, it wasn't a Nazi (gasps) terrorist. It was just a Norwegian guy. Oh, fuck. So then they were found out because they killed the wrong guy by accident right so that's crazy i know and also at the time that this woman was missing it was very well known that the bergen police were looking into it because she was found in bergen Mm -hmm. but decades later like people who are still alive today and like got interviewed for this sick ass bbc podcast they were saying like yeah like we knew the secret police were involved like they would come talk to us and be like you can't release this to the public or you're going to close the case now um you're going to say it was a suicide whereas people within the bergen police department were really like scarred and bothered by this because they're not the secret police they had never seen something like this before and they really wanted to solve it and they did not believe it was a suicide right 
I feel like they were trying to leave us a clue by having that like crazy funeral and all of that. They were trying to be like, this is not normal. Yeah. Someone else look into this. Yeah. Somebody look into anything. this. Let's publicize it yeah. so that in, the story never dies. So BBC journalist Hellier Chung reports that the autopsy concludes the woman died from a combination of carbon monoxide, ingesting a large number of sleeping pills, and the cause of death is announced to be suicide, a view supported by Bergen's chief of police, but many people find this hard to believe. Quote, we talked about it to the police, but as far as I remember, very few people thought it was suicide. Former Bergen police officer Carl Halveros says, I do not believe it was a suicide. Both the remote spot where her body was found and the method of suicide by fire strike him as strange. Harold Oslin was another one of the investigators who did not believe the Isdal woman's death was a suicide and felt that the secret police forced local law enforcement to close the case early. Quote, My father could never put this case away, his son Tor says. He never could accept that they had to close down the case. According to Norwegian news sources, the secret police became involved in the first place after reports came in that the woman had been seen observing the military test out new rockets in western Norway, but there weren't any clear conclusions from their investigation reports. When the BBC and NRK launched their podcast on the Isdal woman, they were allowed to access the previously unreleased Kripos investigative files dated to the 22nd of November 1970, with the classification of secret. The report states that a fisherman in Tanangar named Burton Rod had reported seeing a woman matching the description of the Isdal woman. Although no transcript of the interview with the fisherman is on file, something that would be very unusual to not have in a secret report, the classified document does detail how military and intelligence officials held a meeting where they discussed that the Isdal woman's travel itinerary lined up perfectly with the exercises of the 25th Missile Boat Squadron at Tanangar, during which they tested the capabilities of the experimental Penguin missile, which was the first NATO anti-ship missile with an IR seeker. In the podcast, Death in Ice Valley, the son of this fisherman reported what his dad had told him before he died. Quote, My father was on the quay, working on his nets, when a well-dressed woman with Slavic features walked along the pier, looking around. She approached an officer from one of the torpedo boats and had a long conversation with him, lasting anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes. Weeks, weeks after this sighting, the fisherman would see a police sketch of the Isdal woman. Recognizing her as the woman he had seen on the pier, he immediately contacted the police, which would lead to this secret interview uncovered by the BBC. <gasps> she was a honeypot. Could have been. But yeah. also, so she is, this is like making it even crazier because let's say she's Russian or Israeli or whatever, some non-Norwegian secret agent. She is on the pier talking to a Norwegian officer for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. If you're a Norwegian officer conducting, like, a really cool military exercise that is, like, brand new, going to, like, revolutionize war, why would you just, like, sit there for 20 minutes and talk to a That's, foreign lady? Do you know what honeypotting yes. is? Yes. Yeah. But I'm trying to expand upon your idea. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's why. Because you're like, oh, there's this beautiful woman talking to me. Uh, and I, like, only see boats and other dudes all day. Yeah. So, like, this is really exciting. And he also probably thought she looked super exotic. Because right. as we just talked about, there was, like, no 
variety in Norway in 1970. Right. There was not a lot of like people moving there, not a lot of tourism, not a lot of immigration. So seeing this woman really stuck out to people because she's right. not blonde hair, blue eyes, pale skin. She's mm-hmm. like golden tan, dark hair, dark eyes. She's like got small cur- round she's curvy. She's, she's curvy. She has hips and a small yeah. waist and she's well built. Exactly. They're like obsessed with saying corpses are well built. Yeah. And I'm like, you guys need to check yourself before you wreck yourself because that is not a good look. Journalist C.S. Vol writes on the subject, certain pieces of evidence points to a connection to intelligence services. The variety of wigs, all of her fake identities, at least eight fake passports, an appearance at military exercises, etc. Norway was right on the doorstep of the Soviet Union, and the state would want to learn about new NATO weapons systems. So in this theory, they're saying, oh, this girl must have been working for, like, Russia, for mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, what is the coincidence that her travel itinerary lines up perfectly with their testing schedule? Yes, and they're testing the Penguin rocket. Natalia, have you ever heard of the Penguin rocket? I have now. Now you have. Yeah, it's a penguin in the sky that they threw at people. No, just kidding. The TLDR is that the penguin was a guided missile which used infrared homing technology to track and blow up ships in large boats. The missile began development in the early 1960s in Norway with funding from both the U.S. and Western Germany. It was the first NATO anti-shipping missile with infrared technology instead of radar technology. It was tested off the Norwegian coast in 1970 and entered production in 1972. At the very least, it is extremely suspicious that the Isdal woman seemed to be following the testing locations of this missile. However, there are several compelling points against this theory. C.S. Vol goes on to write, Alexander Vasiliev, a historian and former KGB officer of the Soviet Union, does not believe that the Isdal woman was a Soviet spy. According to him, if she had been a Soviet agent, she would have only had one or two carefully crafted identities, would fully immerse herself in her fake nationality, and wouldn't wear the memorable perfume of spices reported by witnesses. Because of her extensive travel schedule, Alexander Vasiliev drew the following conclusion. She might not be a spy, but she could be a courier. I mean a messenger, because she traveled so much. A courier for someone else. Because let's say you have a spy interested in the testing field for the penguin missile. The spy would be living in that area, staying in that area, trying to gather as much information as possible, establishing contacts with local people, with farmers, fishermen. Now, if she was somehow involved in espionage activities, she looks like she was a courier, passing information, let's say, from a person who lived in that area to the headquarters of that espionage organization to the handler. Vasiliev also theorized she could have been part of an espionage ring involving high-ranking Norwegian officials, hence the efforts to cover it up. Additionally, the DNA results showing the woman as being of European descent also make it unlikely that she was an agent from Israel, as some initially thought. So theory number one is summed up as a spy. We don't know if she was a Soviet spy. We don't know if she was part of Mossad. We don't know. I'm sure other countries had spies. Can I just say that guy who's like, I'm an ex-KGB officer? No, sir. You don't become an ex-KGB officer. You're always a KGB officer or you die or you get killed by the KGB, right? I think he defected to somewhere in Europe when they're interviewing him. Because I heard his interview and he was like, he sounded super badass. He was just like, look, in Russia, if you're going to be a spy, you do not have eight identities. You have one, maybe two. 
and you fully immerse yourself in that identity. You are that identity. You cannot go back to your old identity. We would like, we would not wear perfume uh, that smelled like garlic. We would not like, we would do, okay, you're in Norway and your backstory is you're German. Only German label clothing, only German uh, passport, only German name, only speak German, only um, have like German hair products, German dentistry. Like he was listing off everything the KGB does. And he was basically saying this woman did the exact opposite of everything you would do as a good spy. Well, maybe that, maybe those were, yeah, maybe she was trying to leave hints, you know, maybe she knew she was going to die. Like she knew it was coming. That's why she was sad because she was having these meetings with people and she was realizing like, oh shit, I am going to kill me. They're going to kill me. Like I know something that I'm not supposed to know, or my boss just got fired and I'm the only person who's left, who's like a loose end, whatever it is. And so she's doing weird things like going out and buying rubber boots and like garlic and like leaving suitcases wherever. And I don't know, doing weird stuff like that and leaving clues behind. I don't know. Yeah, she wanted to be remembered, it seems like she wanted people to notice her. She was going out of her way to do things that would make people look at her like a woman. That's another thing the KGB agent said. He was like, in the 1970s, there were very few female spies because it was weird to see a woman by herself mm-hmm. at the time. So like a woman traveling by herself was a big no-no. So that's why they didn't have a lot of female spies. Well, maybe she was on the run. Like maybe she had crafted these identities because she, like we said, she was trying to hide from someone. Maybe she was a spy. And so now she's chosen weird new identities and is hiding out. And that like makes a lot of sense. I don't know. And also just thinking about how much money she she had like you have to have a lot of money to stay in these really nice hotels eating really nice dinners buying like mirrors eczema cream um like getting this extensive dental work that had to have been expensive um taking trains i don't know it's just like you would think that like a person who does not have a good job would in 1970 like wouldn't be able to do what she's doing traveling all over europe yeah i definitely think she's a spy But I'm willing to entertain the next theory. Theory number two, a Jewish refugee or a Nazi hunter. As the Death in Ice Valley podcast gained popularity, a Facebook discussion group was launched where listeners of the podcast could talk about different theories. One user, a woman named Kathy Kirk, wrote the following on February 12th, 2020. I feel the evidence points to the Isdal woman being a Jewish child refugee fleeing Nazi Germany possibly during the mid to late 1930s. The strontium isotope analysis of Isdal woman's tooth dentine shows that she spent some time in Wales. She would have been young enough in the late 1930s to escape Nazi Germany by Kindertransport or OSE. In 1943, Wales accepted Jewish children from Czechoslovakia, but possibly other Jewish children became part of this cohort as well. From the late 1930s, the OSE in France rescued Jewish children of all ages from the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and German-occupied northern France. These children were housed and educated in chateaus or mansions in France. Isdal woman's handwriting revealed that she was taught literacy skills in France. If she were rescued from an area of northern France bordering with Germany, this would also explain her dialect. Perhaps she spent time with the OSE in France and then was transported further to safety in Wales. I agree with the view that in her later life, she could have been tracking ex-Nazis in Europe. This would explain her frequent journeys throughout Europe, her numerous passports and disguises. 
presenting herself as younger than her actual age could have been intended to further conceal the purpose of her investigations. Simon Wiesenthal actively sought out Nazi war criminals after World War II with success during the 1970s and 80s. Four high-profile politicians in Austria were identified by Wiesenthal as ex-Nazi officers in 1971. Her death in 1970 could be significant if she were an agent working for Wiesenthal or Mossad. Perhaps she was killed because she discovered an ex-Nazi high-ranking official as a result of her investigations in Norway. This potential scandal would also explain the quick resolution of her case as a suicide. Yeah, that makes a lot, a lot of sense to me. And if we think about, too, if she it was a refugee of World War II, then her dent, her like dentistry and all that dental work makes a lot of sense because she would, her diet would be really bad. She'd be yeah, missing she'd be teeth. An orphan. Yeah, exactly. So she would have like shoddy dental stuff. And like unrelated to this, but I just remembered um, the other day I was listening to a Case File podcast. There's this podcast called Case File, and he was talking about a true story of a kid who was the only surviving member of um, like a Nazi massacre. Like the Nazis came in, killed all of his family. He had hidden and they didn't see him. He was able to be taken in by like a Catholic neighbor and they hid him kind of like Anne Frank style. Mm -hmm. And then when that village he was in was liberated, he made it his mission to go find the guy that killed his family. And it's a true story. Mm -hmm. And he like, he went to Israel then he like enrolled in the Israeli army. Then he like went AWOL, which is a no-no. It's like a huge crime in Israel to like, it's compulsory military service. So he like left, went somewhere else and ended up fighting in Vietnam. Like he had found where the guy was that had killed his family. The guy was pretending to be some like other like nationality, some other name. He's going under a fake name. Somehow this kid found him went with him to Vietnam in his platoon. And as they're fighting the Viet Cong, the kid goes up to the guy and goes like, I forget what the guy's real name was, but he goes like, hey, like it says his real name. Oh my God. And the guy turns around just like shocked. They're in the middle of this war zone. And this guy's supposed to be on his team. Right. And he just shoots him point blank in the face and goes like, that's for my family and murders him. So this was happening at the time. So could she have been someone like that? Maybe I she's, got chills. I got the chills too. Like she's not part of, maybe she's not part of like a formal organization like Mossad. Maybe she's just on a personal vendetta. Yeah, I think I buy into that, that she's on the personal vendetta because it does seem like, a, she, you know, a lot of the stuff she's doing is not necessarily by the book, but she's clearly trying to be a spy. Like there's nothing like... Who else is going around to a bunch of different locations writing in code? With eight different identities. Yeah, and, and wigs, wigs and passports. It's like she saw a movie on how to be a spy and was like, okay, I'm going to fucking do it. Yeah, so maybe she was like a honeypot, like honeypotting her way around Europe looking for some Nazi guy that she thought was still out there who had right. killed someone she knew. Because a real spy wouldn't go dressed in nice clothes no. and to like go talk to some uh, officer on the fucking dock. Like that would draw way too much attention to you. But she could, I could just see her going up there and just being like, you know, I'm going to fucking Liam Neeson this shit and just being yeah. like, hey, what's up? Like, have you seen this guy around here? It's my fiance. I haven't seen him. And like, we have children together and he doesn't pay child support. And yeah. You know what I mean? And then yeah. the guy just being like, he's like, oh shit, 
this chick's kind of hot. Like, I've never seen a woman with golden skin in this <laughs> and golden, rainy la- land. And that golden teeth as well. Yeah, yeah. And her, it sounds like she's single. Her teeth is as gold as her skin. Gotta lock this shit down. <laughs> All right. Theory number three is the polar opposite of that. Some people think that she was not a Nazi hunter. She was a Nazi on the run. Facebook user Adrian Boston posted the following to the Death in Ice Valley Facebook group on June 4th, 2018. My new theory after episode 8 of Death in Ice Valley is the following. She was 45, which means she was born in the 20s or the 30s in Nuremberg, the cradle of Nazism at the time. So she was a Nazi, maybe SS, and all these different passports in different countries, mainly ex-Nazi allies such as Italy, Rome, France, Paris and wigs and disguises explain her attempt to escape being caught and prosecuted. And her conversation with the fishermen in Norway was probably a well-planned attempt to get on a boat to Argentina, a common Nazi escape destination after World War II. The whole murder case was hushed by the secret services and the police, probably because they knew about this secret Nazi escape route via Norway and wanted to keep it secret in order to catch more Nazis. So this guy's like really drunk the Kool-Aid. Like he yeah, has no proof at all. Right. But I love it. I like it too. I love it. He's just running. with. He's like, you know what? I had a dream last night <laughs> that this woman was a Nazi. And now I'm going to tell you, I think there was a boat. I have no proof. I think there was a boat that went from Norway to Argentina. Right. Yeah. We're not ruling it out. We're ruling it in. <laughs> now, Natalia, theory number four, you picked up on early on a sex worker. If we don't think the Isdal woman was a spy, a Nazi, or a Nazi hunter, then we need to begin to consider other reasons that she may have gone through such lengths to hide her identity. As we discussed in the previous theory, skeptics who don't believe she was a spy pointed out that no spy in their right mind would do so much to stand out from the crowd. Mm -hmm. The Isdal woman was very distinctive and seemed to catch the attention of strangers everywhere she went. A spy would do their best to blend in with the crowd, a requirement of their profession. So what kind of profession might require you to stand out from the crowd? A sex worker advertising her services. Additionally, the fact that the Isdal woman listed her age as being about a decade younger than her true age is odd. Some argue that the only reason for doing this would be to make herself appear more desirable, something a sex worker might do. For example... You might not want to hire a 45-year-old sex worker, but you may be interested in hiring a 30-year-old sex worker. Yeah, well, I think it has to do with, like, sexism. Oh, this this person is 18 and they're just down on their luck, or this person's 25 and are, uh, they're in college or just got out. Like, uh, me, I'm helping them. Yes. I'm giving them money versus, oh, it's this a power person. Yeah, dynamic. this person um, is, is wearing nice clothes and they're a businesswoman and actually they don't want to fuck me. And I'm paying for sex because they wouldn't have sex with me otherwise. I have to pay them. Like, it... it really like fucks with men like they want to believe that they're that you're not taking money from them you know what i, I mean? totally believe that yeah, yeah. like they want to feel like you're not pulling one over on them they're right. like they're doing in you the, a favor and... they're in the position of power so mm-hmm. they can feel good about themselves rather than like you just got played that makes a lot of sense to me guys take notes another point towards this theory in the eyes of some is the following remember how i said that one of the items found with the isdal woman was a matchbox Apparently, there was a logo on that matchbox. When the police looked into the logo, they found that it corresponded to an erotic underwear store in Germany 
something that was thought to be quite scandalous in the 1970s in this part of the world. So 60s and 70s, the U.S. is going through their sexual revolution. Mm -hmm. That revolution didn't hit Scandinavia until a bit later. But that could have been planted by whoever tried to make it look like a suicide. They were like, look, we're just going to make that. We're just going to try to make this look like, you know, this was someone who was living a transient lifestyle. And here's. And so you shouldn't look into it. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good argument. I also think like. Um, I know modern times we don't really use matches. We use lighters. But like if I back in the day when I smoked cigarettes, if I found a lighter at a party and nobody was claiming it, I would take it. I didn't give a shit what it said on it because right. I lo- you lose lighters all the time. And matches are the same. Yes. Yeah. So who's to say that she didn't like go into a bathroom and find an abandoned matchbook and was like, sick, I can smoke my cigarettes. I lost my last matches. Yeah, exactly. And people who leave matchbooks. A matches behind they'd probably want to leave a matches that were like oh you shop at the sex store that's like you're not supposed to shop there because it's the 1970s and this is norway do you remember yeah do you remember those pins that like that would say weird things on them so that people wouldn't steal your pin it was like a whole pack of pins from urban outfitters and it would be like dr dinkle's penis factory and like so if someone <laughs> off like if someone was like hey forgot my pin like can i borrow one of yours like you never get your pin back right when right. you loan someone a pin so there were these pins specifically designed to be so embarrassing that people would return them to you that's hilarious (laughs) dr dingle's (laughs) penis factory that's incredible um it was difficult for me to find much information on sex work in norway in 1970 um, but from the information i could find quote-unquote prostitution was legal and regulated in norway until 1899 Prior to 1899, women engaged in sex work were forced to report regularly to the police and undergo regular gynecological and health checkups. In 1899, these laws were dropped and the last Norwegian public brothels were officially shut down. In Bergen, where the Isdal woman was found, brothels were closed in 1876. However, the closure of brothels and into the regulation of sex work did not eliminate the buying and selling of sex in Norway. I still don't think she's a sex worker because she was sad all the time. Would you, but what if you were forced into sex work? Wouldn't that be sad? Like human trafficking? Yeah. In fact, buying sex was not made a crime in Norway until 2009. In 1972, the radical feminist organization known as Women's Front was founded in Norway. And one of their main goals was to address the exploitation of women in Norway through, quote unquote, prostitution, which we now refer to as sex work. So if I'm switching between those two terms, um, I just want our listeners to know it's because I read an article and it was referred to as prostitution at the time. In the mid 2000s, several exposés came to light about the trafficking of women from Nigeria into Norway against their will by criminal organizations for the purpose of selling sex. These women who were trafficked reported horrific crimes, including rape, assault, and battery by those who purchased sex from them. Those exposés helped, in part, to pass the so-called Nordic model approach to sex work by making it illegal to buy sex, but not illegal to sell sex. In this way, women who had been trafficked would not be unjustly punished for their circumstances, which were obviously out of their control. Although there is much data online about modern sex work laws, there really isn't much data online prior to the founding of the Women's Front Organization in 1972. However, the mere fact that such an organization was founded in 1972 indicates to me that prior to 1972, 
And therefore, in the time that the Isdal woman was seen in Bergen, there must have been some sort of issue in Norway with sex work that was exploitative of women and the abuse of women and the trafficking of women across borders for the purpose of sex work. Also, since selling sex seems to have been a crime in Norway from 1899 to 2009, it does make sense that a high-end escort or sex worker operating in Norway in 1970 may have used false identities and disguises to avoid being caught. My eyes are just narrowing at Alyssa, and she's just looking at me and narrowing her eyes, and we're both just looking at each other with, like, really small, squinted eyes right now, like, just not trusting the other person. But do you understand what I'm saying, though? I understand what you're saying. I get it, right? Like, so she might have been engaging in illegal activity, and therefore she was trying to hide her identity with all of the different wigs, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right, and maybe some of the men she was meeting with were clients and maybe some of them could have been someone who was trafficking her oh right yeah or perhaps it could have been someone who was controlling her in some way telling her hey you need to see this client right hey meet up with me afterwards tell me how it went give me a cut of whatever you were paid it could explain if she were some high-end escort Mm -hmm. um, being trafficked around different countries it could explain why she had access to so much money and so much um like so many high end like meals and right. hotels because a woman traveling alone, I really want to emphasize 1970 was not done in this part of the but, world. But what are the odds that this particular sex worker's sex schedule lines up perfectly with a secret missile scheduling test schedule? What if she were a <laughs> sex worker for the military? Oh, wow. That's interesting. I don't know. Just putting it out there, you guys. New theory. New theory. All right. Theory number five, organized crime ring. This theory comes from the same Facebook group, the discussion group for Death and Ice Valley podcast by one of their most prolific users. This guy literally posted like every single post almost was just him. Is this the same person who's like, I can't prove it, but maybe they got on the boat to go to Argentina? No, that guy was, that was like his only post. (laughs) That was like a lurker who had a dream and then was like, I'm going to make this known. I'm proud of this dream. All right. So this guy's name is David Morgan. David Morgan writes on April 7th, 2020. I had researched a 1972 Czech fraud thief ring quite extensively, but I had never seen the images below until this week. This was Vera Maria Caldas Lima, age 27, who was prosecuted in Norway in 1972. It raises a question. Could there have been... Oh, okay. Well, I'll just summarize this. Basically, sorry, this guy's... It's way too long. I don't want to read it to you. I'll just tell you. So in 1972 in Norway, there was this giant story in the news about these like hot chicks who were part of a check fraud ring. So cashiers, uh, traveler's checks, excuse me. They were traveler's checks, which are basically cashier's checks that you can take abroad. And like, it doesn't matter. You don't need to carry the denomination of the country you're going to because you just have this like universal check that you can cash. Okay. So these ladies who were hot as shit would like sashay into different areas and be like, oh, here's my cashier's check and cash it. And then before anybody knew what was going on, because eventually it would bounce, um, they would just like take the money and run. So in Norway, they were running this scam when they got caught, but not everyone in the ring got caught. Only one, only one lady got caught. And she looks like pretty similar to what they thought the Isdal woman looked like. I can show you a picture. And she had a gap in her two front teeth. So at first people were like, shit, is this the Isdal woman? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, this is a very, this is a beautiful, 
a beautiful, exotic-looking woman. That could definitely be the Isdal woman. But the 1970s painting gave her, like, fair skin. But maybe they're just Norwegian and they don't have, like, exotic paints. Correct. Yeah. They're it's, like, well, these are the only skin tones we have here for skin tone selection. It's paint. so funny. If you guys want to listen to the Death in Ice Valley podcast, I definitely recommend it. And I'll link it in the show notes b- below. Um, It's super fucking long. It's, like, eight hours or something. But they go into talking about, like, they interview all these people. And they're like... Here we have really, really pale skin because it rains all the time. Like we have blonde hair, blue eyes, super pale skin. This woman had like a golden tan. So like maybe three shades less pale than them. So you know what I mean? Right. To them, a golden tan is like pale to us. Yes, probably. Because everyone else is pale. Look, (laughs) I may have a golden tan (laughs) if I went to Norway. Right. (laughs) Who's to say? Right. Um, So I think what they were thinking. Like, when I think of, okay, like, a white person with a golden tan, I'm thinking of, like, Italy. You know, like, someone who's on the beach or, like, France. Right. And that's how people described this woman. Like, oh, someone, like, from that part of the world. And this woman that I just showed you a picture of was Italian. Right. And she had a younger sister that, like, has not been accounted for. In the years since this theory has been proposed, we've discovered that this woman actually died in the 1990s and was like a shitty mom and like her child was abandoned and it was like really sad. Um, But it is interesting because apparently in Europe in the 1960s and 70s, people were were running a lot of like fraud schemes like this because we didn't have computers. So when a check bounced, you wouldn't find out for a while. Right. Um, but was their check bouncing ring also sharing the exact schedule of the penguin missile testing schedule? I counter you with this. What if every single witness was just lying involved with that idea? Like, what if that fisherman who was like, I saw her talking to an officer. What if he just saw some other lady that had a little bit of a tan and was like, mm. it has to be the Isdal woman because what woman here has a tan? Right. I don't know. I don't know. All right, theory number six, suicide. If you're interested in this story and have looked online to see what people in message boards have said about the Isdal woman, it won't take you long to find that a lot of people agree with the Norwegian police's conclusion that the Isdal woman committed suicide. People who subscribe to this theory argue that her erratic behavior is more similar to someone with a mental illness than it is to a professional spy or a member of an organized crime ring. Examples of her erratic behavior include rearranging her furniture inside her hotel rooms, moving pieces of furniture into the hallway, and cutting all of the labels off of her clothes. Remember that one of the main reasons the police determined that this death was a suicide was due to the fact that a fatal amount of barbiturates was found in the Isdal woman's mouth and stomach. In the 1970s in Norway, poisoning, a category which includes overdose, was the most popular way for women to commit suicide. Since barbiturate overdose was statistically the most likely way to commit suicide, the Isdal woman's death was ruled a suicide and her her case was closed. Since statistics were used to come to this conclusion, I thought we'd take a brief look at the statistics and see if we can gain some more perspective and perhaps disprove it. According to the Norwegian Institute of Public Health and Statistics, there were 329 suicides in all of Norway for the year 1970. This number includes the death of the Isdal woman. Of those 329 suicides, 231 were men, and only 98 were women. The Isdal woman was a woman. Was a woman, I wrote. (laughs) 
Of the 97 women whose suicide data is available, most suicides took place in the months of June, August, and September, whereas the Isdal woman died in November. Of those 97 women, poisoning was listed as the most common suicide method with 41, and none of those suicides had burns slash fire listed as contributing factors. The Isdal woman was not only found with a fatal amount of barbiturates in her system, but she was also found horribly disfigured and burned with smoke in her lungs, indicating that she was burned alive, and the fire therefore was considered the main cause of her death. Death by setting oneself on fire is referred to as self-immolation and is an extremely rare form of death, typically only seen in religious or political deaths and always done in public places to garner as much media attention for their cause as possible. Natalia, have you ever heard of self-immolation? Yeah, it's like the the monk, the yes, burning monk. Totally. So famous examples of this suicide practice include Buddhist monks setting themselves on fire in the 1960s to protest the persecution of their religion by the by the Catholic president of South Vietnam. A wave of self-immolations that took place in the Soviet bloc during the 1960s to protest Soviet rule in various countries. And a wave of self-immolations that took place in Tibet from 2009 to 2013 in protest of the Chinese takeover of parts of their country. There was even a recorded case of self-immolation this year in the United States when a climate activist set himself on fire on the steps of the Supreme Court of the United States on Earth Day in April of this year. Detali, did you hear about this? No, this person died? Yes. Wow. This guy was named Wynn Allen Bruce. And he was a climate activist from Boulder, Colorado. According to Wikipedia, in January of 2022, he started posting anti-war photos of this famous monk whose name was, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, but Thich Nhat Hanh. And that's like the famous photo that everyone knows of the guy burning. Yeah, like he's meditating while on fire. Um, And he was posting these photos of him. Then in April of 2022 he posted the most important thing in response to climate change is to be willing to hear the sound of the earth's tears through our own bodies no i don't want to feel that then on close off whatever feeling that is yeah never (laughs) want to ever think about it again then on april 22nd at 6 30 p.m he went to the plaza of the united states supreme court building sat down and silently lit himself on fire And according to a photographer who was present at the scene, he sat perfectly still and upright and did not scream or cry out while on fire for a period of about 60 seconds, after which police extinguished the fire. Only after the fire was out did he start to cry out in pain. Bruce was then airlifted to a hospital where he later died the following day of his injuries. I guarantee you've seen images of the self-immolation of Tikwan Duck. Oh, that's how you pronounce his name. I wrote here. Tikwan Duck protesting Catholic persecution of Buddhists because the pictures have been featured in many magazines and media around the world and even caught the attention of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, who said, no news picture in history has generated so much emotion around the world as that one. Yeah. So let's compare these examples of self-immolation to the death of the Isdal woman. The Isdal woman's death was done in a relatively remote and untraveled area, and she was hidden wedged between rocks making it unlikely she would have intentionally set herself on fire in an act of self-immolation. If she were self-immolating as an act of political or religious protest, doing it in a remote mountain crevice would not make any sense. 
Additionally, in order to believe that the Isdal woman's death was a suicide, we have to discount the testimony of witnesses who claim to have seen the Isdal woman climbing the mountain while looking frightened with men stalking behind her. Remember that one guy that said that? Therefore, in my humble opinion, statistically speaking, in light of all the facts we have just discussed, I find it unlikely that the Isdal woman's death was a suicide. You know what? Listening to you like say theories at the end of your episodes is like watching someone play chess with themselves. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, I'm arguing with myself. There's no one else. You could not be here and I would still be angry about but, this theory. But it's fascinating because, you know, you're going down these like little rabbit holes and wormholes and we're playing shoots and ladders. We're talking about the guy who set himself on fire on Earth Day and I'm feeling all sorts of things and then it like loops back around and it's like, see how sad that made you? Now, the Isdal woman, do you think this was like a similar stunt pulled? And I, I was like, oh, it was actually really brilliant. Good job. Oh, thank you. Like thank little- you so much. Little clap. Wow. Well, let me tell you the final theory. Theory number seven is something paranormal. Okay. No, that just scared me. Your <laughs> eyes got really big. It also looks like one of your eyes is like missing part of an iris. Where? Really? That one? Is it? I don't know. God, I hope not. Can I, I just really like not see right now? In your right one. Where? At the bottom. Or is that just a reflection of the table? I think it's just a reflection of my laptop. Oh, uh, okay. Unless part of my soul has escaped my body. Yeah. Which is possible. <laughs> We're not ruling it out. We're ruling it in. All right. Theory number seven. Final theory. Something paranormal. The Isdal woman's body was discovered on the northern face of Ulrikin, the highest of the seven mountains surrounding the city of Bergen. One of the slopes of this mountain is known as Isdalen or Ice Valley, which is where the Isdal woman was found. Proponents of this theory are quick to point out the spooky history of Ice Valley, which, amongst locals, is colloquially referred to as Death Valley. How many Death Valleys are there on this planet? You know what? Who's to fucking say? You may think that this term was coined due to the Isdal woman's unfortunate demise, but according to BBC Bergen, you'd be fucking wrong if that's what you're thinking. <laughs> the valley's deathly reputation had been around well before 1970. During medieval times, villagers living in Norway who wished to commit suicide would often travel to Ice Valley to do so. In fact, locals have likened the location to the suicide forest in Japan. Thus, the valley developed a reputation for pulling people into it through some unknown force where they would be compelled to commit suicide. Further establishing its creepy reputation were a series of child deaths that took place within Death Valley, and a group of hikers fell to their deaths in Ice Valley in the 1960s while hiking through thick fog. In 1974, an aerial tramway was built into the side of the mountain for transporting tourists and locals up the side of the mountain, And it suffered a deadly accident when one of the gondolas became detached from its cables, plummeting to the ground and killing all four passengers inside. Due to the relatively high number of suicides and accidental deaths in the area, some argue that the Isdal woman's death has a supernatural component, regardless of whether she was murdered, committed suicide, or had an accident or something else. For example, could Norway's Death Valley be cursed or otherwise contain malevolent energy that occasionally unleashes itself upon those who venture into its domain? Who's to say? Additionally, one of the forensic investigators in this case, a man named Tormod Bones, described the crime scene to the BBC as follows. The woman is not wearing the watch or her jewelry. Instead, they have been placed beside her. 
The placement and location of the objects surrounding the body was strange. It looked like there had been some kind of ceremony, he says. This wording has led some to believe that the Isdal woman died as part of some sort of supernatural ceremony. And that is the mysterious story of the unidentified Isdal woman. Well, fuck. Okay, so to piggyback on that paranormal theory there at the end, we know that the Nazis were huge believers in the occult and paranormal, and, like, specifically the SS was trying to find, like, fucking portals to hell and teleport and do all kinds of crazy stuff using, like, demon witch power. Look it up, guys. It's real. So I I don't know. Maybe that almost kind of ties in more to the Nazi hunting one. Yeah. Why does it have to be mutually exclusive to your point? Like, why can't we tie together um, Nazi on the run or Nazi hunter? Well, no. So I think she was probably a Nazi hunter, right? Because she's oh. like kind of like a vigilante spy. She's not doing things by the book. Uh, she's drawing more attention to herself than anything. And I think she probably found some people out who were high up ranking or whatever. And they killed her like in a ritualistic fashion? Yeah, because they were Nazis. I believe it. Yeah. Theory number eight, case closed. Bet no one thought of that before <laughs> in the Facebook discussion group of Death and Ice Valley. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to go and log into Facebook and put it in there. You and be like, zinger. Yeah. Bet you guys never thought of this. Right. Yeah. And then they're going to like <laughs> kick you out and block you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to read my sources and then I'm going to ask you for your sign off. Isdal Woman, The Mystery Death Haunting Norway for 46 Years, written by Hellyer Chung for BBC Bergen. Tracing the Mysterious Isdal Woman by C.S. Vol for HistoryofYesterday.com. Wikipedia.org. Death in Ice Valley, a BBC and NRK podcast that I highly recommend if you're interested in this story, as it covers the Isdal woman in depth, and they did a ton of first-hand research traveling to Norway and looking at the Isdal woman's bones and the police reports. Additionally, there's a really great Facebook discussion group centered around the podcast called Death in Ice Valley, where the show's fans post their own theories and opinions. Bergen's cold case heats up with TV show, written by Lorianne Reinhall for the Norwegian American. Norwegian Institute of Public Health and Statistics, Norway. A glimpse into 30 years of struggle against prostitution by the women's liberation movement in Norway by Agnet Strom for Reproductive Health Matters Journal, accessed via JSTOR. Where You Grew Up, What You Ate, Your Bones Record Your Life by Aaron Blakemore for National Geographic. And The Development of Norwegian Prostitution Policies, A Marriage of Convenience Between Pragmatism and Principles by May Lynn Skielbray for Sex Res Suck Policy, accessed via JSTOR. Natalia, sign off. BRB, gonna go pack my parachute for any traveling situation ever because it cannot hurt you. It can only help you. Bye! Bye.